Well, aloha from Maui, Hawaii. It's Michael Benner with this week's Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. As always, a pleasure to be with you. I uh, have a little bit of a cold, mostly over it, but my voice is a little bit weak. I may cough a couple of times. I don't have any kind of cough button to edit it out. Uh, So I'm apologizing in advance if I get on a coughing jag. And I may sound a little wheezy, because I am. I'm just a bit congested. I feel fine, and uh, you know how it goes. Sometimes you feel great, but the equipment's not working as well as it should. So uh, we're going to give it a go here and talk about our topic of the day, the power of respect. And uh, we may not go as long as we often do, an hour 45 to two hours. I may only do 45 minutes or an hour today. We'll see how the how the voice holds up. But uh, this is a topic I've been looking forward to doing, uh, especially in the wake of the Tucson massacre and the fallout from that, primarily the call for more civility in our dialogue, which I totally concur with. I I do not agree that there is an equivalency on the left versus the right. I'll talk a little about that. I will touch on politics today. I know that gets a lot of people excited. You love that when I do it. Others are not so excited when I do it. But even when I talk about politics, it's not from a political point of view. And so I'd caution you to Uh, listen carefully. It's more from uh, a philosophical point of view, from a point of view of consciousness. And I'm going to reframe tradition, as I often do, or always do, really, always have done, is reframe what is traditionally seen as left-wing, right-wing politics and add another dimension, a vertical dimension, a... um, a matter of consciousness, higher consciousness and lower consciousness, and show you the correspondence between levels of awareness and politics and how that works in both directions. Because there's not just a left and a right, there's also an up and a down. And I think that's what people are asking for now in uh, the wake of the uh, shooting in in Tucson of so many people and and the insane way in which this has been done. But also the feeling that so many people had that this was going to happen sooner or later. When people start bringing guns to political rallies, somebody's going to use one. That's the problem with weapons and the madness in this nation that anybody would believe that more guns makes you safe. We've even heard calls from congressmen like uh, uh, this Gomert in Texas who wants all Congress people to carry guns while they're on the floor of the House of Representatives. Uh, this kind of madness has to be exposed. Guns never, ever, ever, ever make you safer. Uh, we, we've just got overwhelming statistical evidence that guns always put you in greater danger. Um, You have a right, perhaps, 
But you also have a right, I suppose, to do all kinds of things that are not in your interest. And the the evidence is that a gun that is purchased by a law-abiding citizen, a good, honest, hard-working person for their own defense, is nevertheless six times more likely to be taken away and used against you than ever fired in self-defense, 600%. So you start bringing guns around, uh, and I've been around guns all my life. I grew up in the country. I hunted when I was a little boy, seven, eight years old. I was firing rifles. By the time I was 11 years old, I was in the National Rifle Association. I have medals and uh, certificates and frames I don't hang them on the wall anymore. I, I outgrew all of that stuff. By the time I was 17 or 18, I gave up hunting because I didn't see any point in shooting the animals. I did it because my friends did it, and we did it because our dads all hunted. And uh, whether it's deer or rabbits or pheasants or ducks, we just grew up in that culture. And I loved being outdoors with the animals. I just decided I didn't need to kill them to have fun. And uh, so by 17 or 18, I gave all of that up. And I'm not saying you shouldn't hunt. I'm just saying that uh, to have guns in your home to protect yourself is foolish. And to take them to political rallies is insane. We are by far the most violent nation in the world. And we can prove that in terms of our domestic homicide rate, uh, accidental gun uh, shootings, uh, suicides with guns. Of course, the number of wars that we're in, we're currently fighting five or six wars around the world. Other nations don't do that. Um, we have the highest gun ownership. We have the highest percentage of our people in prison than any other nation in the world. Um, it's really a violent, violent country in, in many ways. But what's underneath it? Our topic today is not guns or politics. Our topic today is the power of respect. So my point is to move quickly beyond the appearance or the result or the effects that we're talking about, like the level of hostility and calls for violence by political leaders, more on one side than the other. And the idea that it's okay to take a gun to a political rally. When George Bush was president, you couldn't wear a T-shirt that said, I'm a Democrat, to a rally. They wouldn't let you in. But Obama is different. He has to tolerate people bringing assault rifles to health care rallies, as if that's not an attempt to intimidate people. It's unconscionable, and it's barbaric. And again, there is not an equivalency. Um, there's uh, anger on both sides, the left and the right. And there may even be hatred on both sides, the left and the right. But the calls for violence and the racism, the unbridled racism and the lack of respect for other human beings, 
is, I am arguing today, at the root of all of this. So we can talk about this being a violent country, but if we talk about why, what promotes it, and why is it uh, so hateful, it's the lack of respect. A lot of that is born of racism and the fact that this is a slave nation, that this country was founded by slaveholders, that this country was born out of genocide of the native peoples, uh, that this country to this day is an imperialistic power that goes around the world, um, you know, stomping on the rights of other people. And um, the there has to be a common denominator. There, uh, there has to be something at the root that is ultimately the cause of all of this. And my argument could be it's a lack of love. But I'm afraid that love is too general a term and too overused a term. I remember uh, years ago at KPFK, four or five years ago, when I did a show in Los Angeles on KPFK, I went in one day with the intention of opening the telephones and leading a discussion on the nature of love. What is love? And at the last minute, I changed it, and I made the title, What Do You Care About? What is caring? Why do you care? What do you care about? Why do you care? What does it mean that you are a caring person? And it became, I thought, a fascinating program, one of my favorite programs that I ever did. And it's because I called it caring instead of love. That word doesn't really, the word love, again, I, I think it's just overused, and it's so inclusive, it has so many meanings, that it's really difficult for people to know what you're talking about. So when I changed it to, what do you care about? Why do you care? What does it mean that you care? It opened people up in a, in a remarkable way, and so it is with respect. If I say there's not enough love, you know, it's just sort of like um, it dilutes it, it moderates, the, it softens the focus because I think it's just really, really difficult to talk about this huge category of love in this way. But if I say, you know, one of the primary qualities of love is respect. And that when we talk about the levels of uh, violence in the society, the hatred, the anger, the racism, you, you, you can't look at what's happening during the Obama pres presidency and not factor in that much of the political motivation here is born out of racism, you know, when somebody stomps their foot and yells out, I want my country back. You know what they're saying. I want, it, I want a time when people knew their place, when people of color were not so uppity, when women knew that they belonged in the kitchen and when white men ruled the world.
That's what they want, you see. So, <clears throat> excuse me, there's no question that racism is at the root of it. But what's at the root of racism? You see, it's a failure to honor, a failure to respect. Uh, let's define respect, actually. What is respect as a quality of love? Respect is a deference to the rights of other people. It's honoring the humanity and the human rights of life, liberty, and happiness that an enlightened person immediately would grant to every human being. Now, I hasten to add here, I mentioned this in the newsletter, and it certainly certainly bears repeating, we need to talk about the fact that, yes, some people make it very difficult to respect them. Some people behave in a way that uh, makes it very, very challenging. It's almost as if they loathe the idea of being respected. They don't want your respect because then perhaps that might imply that they have a responsibility to respect you back. And that's frightening to some people. They don't want to come off of the place of I have enemies and I want to be afraid. I feel safer when I'm afraid. This is very fundamental. This upside down, inside out, backward belief that your fear makes you safe. Everybody has elements of it. I've talked about it in the past. I'll talk about it in the future. I'm going to talk about it now. It's difficult to talk about because it's so crazy and so backwards, but also because it's so damn popular. It's such a common belief that people are afraid to stop being afraid. So you're training your brain to feel as if it needs to always look around to find the danger. I'm already afraid, therefore there must be danger, reasons the conscious mind. Now my job is to find that danger. In fact, the subconscious mind, through the so-called fight-or-flight response, or a function in the brain, the actual center in the brain called the amygdala that hijacks higher brain functions in the presence of danger real or imagined. And whether that perception of danger real or imagined is real or imagined, it doesn't really matter. You will react as if it's real. And your higher brain functions your ability to be intelligent and reasonable, uh, to have a good memory, to think clearly, to be creative and intuitive, is destroyed, hijacked by the amygdala in order to throw you into your ancient lizard brain, your animal brain that you inherited from the dinosaurs before there even were humans here. You know, we pull on the animal kingdom in the same way we draw upon the plant kingdom and the mineral kingdom. We, these kingdoms of 
evolve from each other. And so the plant kingdom needs minerals, right? You feed your plants in your garden minerals so they'll be healthy and strong and delicious and nutritious. And so animals pull upon the plants to get the minerals. And we draw in the same way upon all those lower kingdoms. We are all of that. The problem is that we tend to feel separated and connected, uh, disconnected rather than connected. And we do have this fight or flight response that's inherited, really, evolved out of the uh, animal consciousness. Plants, you could argue, have a fight or flight response, but it'd be another topic for another show. Plant, many plants do develop defenses put out certain toxins and some plants even are able to produce weed killers and defenses against fungus and insect blight and it's quite fascinating actually to see it operating in the plant kingdom it's more obvious in the animal kingdom but the tendency of humans to behave automatically or autonomically like animals is fraught with these problems born primarily of seeing yourself as separate from and other than um, less civilized right and always afraid and encouraging uh, themselves to be afraid and each other as if that's some kind of defense as if fear is in your interest well, if fear is in your interest, then you have to argue that hurt is going to be in your interest, hatred is going to be in your interest, anger is going to be in your interest, and violence is going to be in your interest. And all you got to do is walk into any bar on a Friday or Saturday night and start asking some guys uh, why they're angry and, and violent. And they'll give you all kinds of reasons that have to do with defending themselves. But it's most offensive, you see. And this idea that I uh, am in too much danger to feel safe, if I allowed myself to feel safe, that would put me in danger. So I have to feel that I'm in danger to be safe. It's crazy. It's absolutely insane. But the vast majority of people either believe it or act as if they believe it. Many people have never even thought this through. Why do I, why do I use fear to feel safe when fear is just going to obviously leave me feeling afraid? <laughs> and why am I afraid to feel safe? as if feeling safe puts me in danger, you see. So we're always on guard. Uh, we're suspicious of each other. And it comes out of fear. It comes out of separation, uh, a sense of alienation. And part and parcel of all of this is a failure and even a refusal to grant respect to other people. Now, I'll give you an example. Usually, I post 
on Twitter and Facebook, um, as well as sending out the newsletter and a few other things that we do every week to promote this class. Uh, I will post, let's just take Facebook as an example, a little announcement usually on Thursday or Friday uh, that says the class that's coming up on Sunday and what we're going to talk about. And here's a link to go there if you want to check it out. And people will comment on that link. And I might get, um, oh, 10 or 15 comments on an average week, uh, sometimes 30, 40, 50 or more. This, since the Tucson shooting, I've had a couple of posts that have had in excess of 40 or 50 comments on the whole discussion threads have started. In other words, there's interest. When I posted this week that I was going to do a program on the power of self-respect, I did it by posting initially the following statement. You are much more likely to defeat an enemy you respect than one you hate. You're much more likely to defeat an enemy you respect than one you hate. I got maybe four comments, and two or three of them challenged the idea, uh, were um, put off by it. Partly, I think, because, as I've already mentioned, some people do make it very difficult to respect them. Some people will taunt you, will, like, don't be respecting me, because that suggests I might have to respect you, and I don't like you, and I don't want to like you, and I don't want to know you, and I'm angry at you. I may have a grudge against you. I don't even like people that are that look like you <laughs> or believe what you believe, right? I'm not. I'm not going to... Don't you respect me? That's too threatening, right? And so I posted it in a more gentle way. Instead of saying, uh, basically, you're more likely to defeat an enemy that you respect than one you hate. I mean, do you recognize that? Do you, do you understand what that is? Remember what I said at the top of the class today about talking about respect instead of love? It's love your enemy. And yet most people didn't recognize it as that. Because we've got hundreds of millions, literally billions, of Catholics, Protestants, and, and Christians calling themselves Christian, but who have no idea what love your enemy means. And really don't believe it anyway. Much less turn the other cheek or any of the other admonitions like blessed are the peacemakers, uh, the meek shall inherit the earth, uh, walk the extra mile and all of those things. Okay. The idea of forgiveness and compassion. These are the most difficult lessons I would argue for anybody Christian or otherwise to learn. It's incumbent upon the Christian it's also found in all religions, but that 
love your enemies, phrased that way, love your enemies, that's always been a challenge to Christians. The early Christians before the church, in the first several hundred years after Christ, these Christians were true pacifists, and they would not fight. Um, they had a better understanding than we do now. Since the church, the church raised armies. And so they had to become very hypocritical and modify that. And so even today, you've got uh, Christian ministers and uh, you know preachers and priests that will go out and bless a battleship and splash holy water on the bombs before they go off to uh, explode people, men, women, and children. It's, it's crazy that anybody calling themselves a Christian could harm anybody else. Questions of self-defense? All right, we'll do a program one day on pacifism. We'll talk about degrees of self-defense. But, you know, flying halfway around the world to another time zone, like Iraq, where there really is no standing army, no air force, no tanks, no submarines, no battleships, uh, no standing army to speak of, and uh, uh, fighting for war is hardly self-defense, right? So this whole idea of a failure to respect other people, I'm arguing is at the root of this, and yet the big question here in the power of respect is how could you respect yourself if you're not willing to respect everyone else, even your enemies, your opponents, those people need your respect more than the people that you love. The people you love, you already respect, or people you don't know who are just in the background and who you'll never know. You may have a modicum of respect for somebody you've never met, because you don't know anything about him, you can't form any kind of judgment about him. So, okay, you shrug, I'll, I'll respect their humanity. I'll respect their right to life, liberty, and happiness. Okay. But I'm not going to respect this guy. Look at this horrible thing that he did. Or I'll never respect these people. And then people take it right to the wall, right? all the way out to the limit and say, well, now, how am I going to respect the people that flew those airplanes into the Twin Towers? Or how am I supposed to respect uh, Adolf Hitler or Stalin or somebody who commits some horrible uh, atrocity against humanity? How do we learn to respect those people? Well, I already admitted at the top some people make it very, very difficult to respect them. And I've already stated one of the primary reasons why. It, it carries with it an implication that that respect would have to be returned. <laughs> right? And if I don't want to respect you because it makes me feel vulnerable and in some sort of danger, then I sure as hell don't want your respect. 
that's what you be that that's what you've been seeing since the election of Barack Obama. Was there anger against George Bush, even hatred? Yeah, but it was based on his behavior. It was based on lies that were told, the deception of the American people, wars that were fought, uh, the Constitution that was shredded, torture, war crimes, um, again, throwing away habeas corpus, the right to due process. There were reasons for it. The hatred, the anger, and the animosity directed at Barack Obama is largely racist in nature. Now, if you disagree with Obama's policies, that's fine. You can say, well, this is socialism. I don't know that a 3% increase in income tax for the richest 2% of Americans taking taxes back to the level they were at when Bill Clinton was president, really constitutes socialism, much less tyranny. I really don't think it's a reason to call Barack Obama a fascist, Nazi, communist, socialist tyrant. Okay. These are appeals to what the media has come to call the low-information voter. They're appeals to unsophisticated, uneducated, um, largely frightened people. It's an attempt to use fear to herd people like cattle with fear, right? To marshal a base through the application of fear. So a lot of that is going to be encouraging people to disrespect. And again, the next thing you know, you have people bringing guns to health care rallies. What does bringing your assault rifle have to do? Democrats don't bring guns to health care rallies. Now, I don't want to oversimplify. I, I refuse to oversimplify politics and suggest that Democrats are always right and Republicans are always wrong. I'm old enough to remember when there were conservative Democrats, I don't mean blue dogs, but real Democrats who were who had conservative, especially in the area of fiscal policy, conservative beliefs. And there used to be liberal Republicans. Uh, that's all gone away. Now you can just lay conservative and liberal over Republican and Democrat. The Republicans have gotten even more conservative. Democrats have shifted to the right so that a, a, a moderate Democrat today, a so-called blue dog, is really somebody who has what even a few years ago would be conservative politics. So meanwhile, and this is the vertical dimension I mentioned uh, earlier in the class today, meanwhile the country is progressing. The country moves to the left. Because part of conservative and liberal, another overlay is reactionary and progressive.
The right wing is reactionary. They want to go back. They want to return to knee-jerk policies and the kind of class structure that I mentioned earlier, where people of color knew their place and were not uppity, didn't think they were as good as white people, where women knew their place and they did not challenge the authority of men, and where white men ruled the world. I want my country back. That's what Republicans represent, by and large. Right? They want to go back to these times and this sense of entitlement that the United States has as an imperial power, better than everybody else. Um, the right wing talks a lot about American exceptionalism. Well, that's code for racial superiority, right? How different is that from what Hitler represented and the Aryan nation and the idea that white people were better? These are basically conservative politics. And they're threatened by, very threatened by, the idea that a black man could be in the White House built by slaves. Imagine that. And again, we, we bear this baggage. As, as much as we may love this country and the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and the promise and opportunity that America represents as a democracy, but we've still got to be honest with ourselves and each other about our roots in the genocide of the indigenous people and the fact that this is a slave nation. And we have a lot of racism that remains in this country, much of it institutional, built into the system, that you don't see until you suffer from it. You've really got to be a woman to understand sexism. And you've got to be a person of color to understand racism. So... I think there's a lot of well-intentioned Caucasians that just don't get it. They don't see it. And they're missing the opportunity to respect themselves even more by learning to respect other people, whether they deserve it or not. This is one of the most important points I can make in the class today. Respect is not an issue of deserving you don't earn respect. Respect is not something or should not be something that needs to be earned. The idea that, well, they don't deserve my respect is wrong-headed. Now, you may not know if you're agreeing with me right now. That might challenge you directly. It's, it's meant to. Okay. And if after considering it, you disagree with me, fine. I'll just hope that you continue to consider it uh, throughout the rest of your life, that it may be wrong-headed. It, may, it, it just might be a horrible mistake, in spite of what you've heard, to believe people have to earn your respect or that they should deserve respect. Respect is your obligation as a human being. Respect is your responsibility as a human being. Respect is 
at the very least, your opportunity to be a better person by respecting the basic fundamental humanity of every other person on this planet. Now, if you can take that out to respecting the animals and respecting the plant kingdom and the mineral kingdom and the ecosystem and the environment in general, you might recognize how that's in your interest and how it would be in the, in the interest of everyone who breathes air, drinks water, and eats food. It's pretty inclusive, right? To protect the environment. And yet we poison ourselves. Our planetary life support system is on a daily basis routinely being poisoned. We poison ourselves because we don't respect the life support system. Well, when you don't respect your enemy, when you don't respect adversaries, opponents, and people that you just don't like, how can you respect yourself? You have poisoned yourself. Okay. Now, this starts with your spouse and your kids and your parents. We can easily get to a place emotionally where our love and our trust and our respect, and by love here I mean the care, they're all qualities of love, the caring part of love, caring, respect, and trust, those primary qualities of love are lost in a familial relationship because you get angry at somebody under the anger is hurt and under the hurt is fear okay so when you become uh, angry you can uh, deconstruct that and find the hurt and in the process of finding the hurt you can go to the fear and work with that on a very fundamental level if you're willing to there is that component from the lizard brain, the limbic system, the animal brain, that says, no, don't let go of your fear and your anger. Hold on to that anger. That's a good thing. Be an angry person. That will make you safe. Don't you dare respect or even try to understand those people. They are the other. They are the opponent. They are different. And one of the the biases of an amygdala hijack in the fight-or-flight response is either-or thinking, so-called binary thinking, where all differences are opposites. Like, uh, you might agree with this person 98%, and you disagree in 2%, and you get into that 2% area where you disagree, and you forget about the 98%, and they become the enemy, right? So you're angry at your spouse, right? You hate your kids. You despise your parents, and you refuse to respect them. Part of recovering emotionally and managing your emotions so that you get your intelligence back and get your love back and your wisdom back is to leave.
lead, I would argue, by reorienting yourself with respect. Learn to respect the right of the other person to disagree, no matter how foolish or wrong-headed they may be. And if they're contemptuous of your attempts, again, I, I've said a couple of times already, there are those people and there are those times where certain people will make it exceedingly difficult for you to respect them. I say your job is still to work at finding something about them to respect and go to that. Even if only it is that they are a human being, a member of the family of man, right? Part of humanity. Uh, I would even argue and say without hesitation to this group, because of the nature of this class, self-help and spiritual development, that the best reason to respect another human being is that they are a soul incarnate. A religious person would say because they're a child of God. Now again, I know how your mind works. Immediately you race out to Hitler or Stalin or some horrible universally accepted uh, criminal and say, you want me to believe that God loves Adolf Hitler? Uh, yeah, uh, of course. But from the point of view of the soul rather than the personality or the ego, all of us are soul-infused beings. We are, as Teilhard de Chardin said, not human beings that have an occasional sense of their spirituality. We are spiritual beings having a human experience and need to reorient ourselves often many times each day. And remember, I have a choice. I don't have to continue being a human, an incarnated fear-based ego looking for spiritual components to my sense of self. I, I can reverse polarities and be that soul be that overshadowing spiritual self and appropriate this animal based fear based separated alienated often hostile and angry egoic self okay that is an ability that we all have and to do that we must pull upon love as conscious awareness. This is a very, very important concept for anybody interested in personal and spiritual development to understand that love is so much more than an emotion. That love, when it's capitalized and used in this way, is a reference to consciousness or the soul on its own plane. The idea is heresy to most religions, but the perennial philosophy, the ageless wisdom, mysticism, and esoteric philosophy in general says the soul.
soul pre-exists. It is now above in freer form. In other words, your soul is already in heaven. Uh, millions of people have been murdered, beheaded, uh, waterboarded, and burned at the stake for this ancient belief system found in all cultures, in shamanism, in all societies, from time out of mind, from the age before prophets, before Hermes, before Krishna, before Buddha, before Christ, before Moses, before Lao Tzu, before Confucius, there was a wisdom. There was this Prisca Theologia, this ancient concept that was found in the indigenous people of all the continents as they spread around the world, this fundamental... I was watching these Hawaiian dancers on the local public access TV here in Maui the other day, and they were doing all these old uh, old songs, not the Hawaiian music that we know from the 19th century, but hundreds of years old, thousands of years old, these really ancient Hawaiian songs. And I was struck by how much they reminded me of the Native American, the Hopi, the Navajo, um, and the various, uh, the Apache, the Sioux, the various Indian tribes of the plains and, and the mountain states, and even back east, the indigenous people of North America. And uh, it, it's really remarkable to study the ancient, what we know of the ancient history of the world. And sometimes the church, the church will just write all of that off as paganism, you know, which has become a disparaging word. But there is a wisdom, there is a spiritual knowledge, uh, a general outline or a skeleton of morality and philosophy of aspiring to our better, higher nature that is found in the age, truly ancient times, before any of the religious prophets, before any religion at all. Now, it's also found in religion, but the problem is that religion, like any other institution, tends to get corrupted. And uh, so, again, you have a church that supposedly espouses love your enemy, but they raise an army and go out and kill people, and even other Christians. It wasn't just Jews and Muslims and and non-Christians that were killed in the Crusades, but Cathars and Gnostics and <coughs> excuse me, other other Christians as well. That's where that that phrase comes from: "Just kill them all, and God will sort them out." So we have a long tradition uh, as human beings of responding in the presence of fear. Again, born of danger, real or imagined, often imagined, that gives rise to this reticence to love, this resistance to respect. And we're missing out just because it's difficult and because some people conspire to make it 
especially difficult to respect them. You might find yourself in a position to say, well, <coughs> excuse me, I, I tried to respect that person, but I wasn't able to. They just wouldn't allow me to. Wait a minute. Uh, they have nothing to do with it. You can respect somebody without their permission. You can respect somebody that refuses to respect you in return. You can respect somebody simply for the fact that they are a soul, they are a human being, they are a member of humanity. No matter how evil or contemptuous they may be. And when you do that, what you get in return is a quality of self-respect that is indescribable. Now, this is true because this is the way love works, and I've already described respect as a primary quality of love, especially love as consciousness. You can't have self-love if you're not willing to love other people. And it's always reaping what you sow. It's always receiving what you give. It's not receive and give. It's give and receive. So part of the trick is you cannot wait for somebody to respect you or love you in order for you to say, well, now I can love and respect them in return because they have granted it to me. In other words, the idea you go first, uh, you say you're sorry, and then I'll say I'm sorry. <laughs> you give up the grudge, and then I. It never ever works that way, right? You cannot harvest a crop and say now I'll plant the seeds. <laughs> you have to initiate. It's so interesting to me that clubs and groups and societies initiate each other. We are going to initiate you. To initiate means you are the one that's going to take the first step. Self-initiation is what I'm talking about. You have to be an initiate, one who initiates or begins the cycle. Anything you want to receive, you must first give away. It's so profoundly true in every area of your life that it should be obvious when it comes to something as primary as love, love as consciousness, your very soul, right? your identity, what you are, who you are, that you are, not your name, not your job, not your status in life, not your possessions, not your physical body. You are your awareness of the things that we're talking about. You are consciousness. You are, and that's love. That's how conscious, that's what awareness is. To be consciously aware or to be aware that you're conscious is to feel peace and love and respect and trust, and kindness, and forgiveness, and compassion. Okay. 
And each of us has the opportunity perpetually as moment unfolds to the next moment, right? As your life just unfolds moment to moment to reorient yourself from the animal nature to the human nature to the solar nature to your higher nature where you say, I must lead with respect. All right. Now, again, to go back and just touch on politics a little bit, because we do have this massacre in Tucson, and we have a nation that is talking about a need for a new civility. And my God, I'm, I'm amazed at what's happened even on Fox News. They seem so civil all of a sudden, so decent, so... Uh, intelligent. Now, I don't think it's going to last because there's so much money and profit built into hatred and anger and fear. Fear is the moneymaker. This is what Roger Ailes and Rupert Murdoch know. Uh, all the other networks know it as well. But Fox News is certainly preeminent when it comes to practicing the indoctrination of fear in the way that captivates people. Again, we have this crazy bias in human beings in general that fear makes you safe. The more afraid you are, the safer you'll be. And you better not feel too safe because that'll put you in danger. It's insane but it, <laughs> it's crazy, it's wrong-headed, it's backwards, but you can feel yourself even now struggling with it. I've mentioned it a couple of times, and some part of your head is saying, well, wait a minute, Michael, uh, sometimes we need to be, uh, be afraid, that's how we stay safe, right? Well, it's not true, right? There is the initial impact of how you might feel, but there's also what are you going to do with that feeling? And even if you're presented with real, clear, and present danger and you become afraid, your safety is a function of moderating that or balancing that, breathing and relaxing. This is the essence of sports psychology, for example. Right? And, and to is a Davy Crockett grinning down the grizzly bear. When you feel safe in the presence of fear, you're much more likely to prevail. And what I'm saying today is when you grant respect to people who oppose you, even your enemies, you are much more likely to prevail than if you simply stay with the built-in automatic I hate you. I despise you. Go away. And I'm going to intimidate you by bringing guns to a health care rally. Right? We've got a serious problem with racism in this country. I've already said that. We have a problem with anger and even hatred all around the political spectrum, certainly on the left and the right. But much of 
what passes for partisan politics. Not all of it, but a large component of what passes for partisan politics is merely a disagreement with poorly educated, unsophisticated people who are being manipulated by exceedingly rich and powerful interests, special interests, to work for and vote for issues that are against their own best interest. You know, why would a, uh, a middle class or poor person be in the Tea Party when all of their platform positions are dictated by exceedingly rich and powerful special interests that are destroying the middle class in America and hurting the very people that rush to join the Tea Party. Well, because most of them are not reading. Right? The educational level is pretty clear here. These are the low information people. Just look at the signs. You know, where the the words are so often misspelled. Listen to their leaders. You know, Sarah Palin thought Africa was a country. She couldn't even tell you what she read, her news sources, and then accused Katie Kirk of gotcha journalism for asking her such a tricky question, like, what do you read? They don't. They're not interested in reading. Okay. Does that mean all liberals are correct and intellectual? Or they're all loving and compassionate? Or they're all uh, more interested in other people than themselves. No, it's not that simple. But I will argue that in the most general way, in addition to left wing, right wing, and there should be a healthy tension between conservative and liberal, right, on a number of issues. The whole idea of democracy is reasonable people will disagree. But we have to have mutual respect, love, and trust of each other for it to be a healthy tension. Otherwise, it becomes fear-based, and the brain is telling you you have to eliminate or destroy the opposition. Now, I used to be in radio I, you can call this sour grapes, but one of the reasons that I'm not in radio anymore is that 20, 25 years ago, it became all hate radio. All hate all the time, 24-7. Hate, anger, fear. Why? Well, there was deregulation and large corporations were buying up these radio stations. When I started in the business, there were 6,000 radio stations owned by 5,000 corporations. Today, five corporations own 6,000 radio stations. And they're rubber stamps. They're carbon copies of each other. And they have a far right-wing agenda. And you could say, well, right-wing radio is popular. Well, there is no left-wing radio to speak of. I could name maybe a dozen talk show hosts on Air America and elsewhere. But um, they need sponsors. Who's going to sponsor them? Right. So 
these large corporations have promoted right-wing radio to promote their particular agenda, which is increasing uh, monopolization and centralization of power and a regressive political position. So in spite of this, this bias to, toward the right, I want to suggest here that there is this vertical dimension that basically right-wing politics are not only reactionary but regressive. I don't mean conservative politics. I like a lot of conservative politics and have already acknowledged the need for a good, healthy tension, if you will, a dynamic, respectful tension between conservative and liberal. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about hatred from the right, okay, and violence and racism on the right, because there is hatred and anger on the left. But you don't have the violence and racism on the left. Liberals don't bring guns to political rallies. And they don't promote racism. And they don't gin up the hostility around immigration. I saw Martin Short on Bill Maher last week. He was talking about being a Canadian. He said, we're the illegal immigrants you don't hate. Yeah, because they're white people. <laughs> you know, you, you, Nobody's upset about uh, illegal immigrants coming in from Canada or Europe although they used to be. There were the Jewish ghettos and the Irish ghettos and the Italian ghettos. and You know, American racism knows no bounds. But the white people tend to blur together. They change their names. They become Americans. People of color will always stand out. So what I'm saying is that there's a vertical dimension here, which is independent of left and right, it is that conservative, beyond the conservative nature of the right wing is this uninformed, largely unintelligent, unsophisticated, except for the power structure that drives it, this element of I want my country back, I want to go back to the unjust an unfair uh, class structure where um, Indians were savages, where black people were chattel, where women do their place and didn't challenge the authority of men, and where white men ruled the world. I want my country back. And then we're going to fight these perpetual wars around the world as if we're not going to fall like every other empire, from the Roman Empire to the British Empire to the French and the Portuguese and the and the Africa, the Netherlands and and uh, the Japanese and every attempted empire has failed because that's you know dominating and controlling and disrespecting other people doesn't work. It destroys you. It poisons you. So you can begin to practice this, not in a political way, but with your spouse, with your 
children with your parents. Lead with respect. Over my years of counseling, I've dealt with countless parents that have said to me on just so many occasions, I talk and talk to my kids till I'm blue in the face and they just don't listen to me. And often I would say in return, do you listen to them? And sometimes you get these blank looks like, well, I'm the parent. They're just the kid. Why would I listen to them? You see? And, of course, the answer is to grant them the respect that they obviously don't feel from you or they wouldn't be acting out. To grant them respect is a quality of a primary quality of love that they need. How many parents consciously go out of their way to respect their children? And again, the reward is only then can you begin to know self-respect. Only if you initiate, if you give love, could you possibly love yourself. Now it works the other way too. You need self-love to uh, love others. You need self-respect to respect others. But in the chicken and the egg of it, It's got to begin with the giving, with the granting, and give up this idea that it needs to be earned or deserved. Just flush that out of your vocabulary and out of your consciousness. If you hear yourself saying, but they don't deserve my respect, remember Clint Eastwood in that movie, he said, respect it, he said, Uh, not respect, he said, deserving has nothing to do with it. Don't kill me, I don't deserve it, Gene Hackman says. I think it's the unforgiven. And Clint Eastwood says, deserving has nothing to do with it. And blows him away, because he killed his friend. Deserving has nothing to do with it. People don't need to deserve your respect. You're the one that deserves to initiate respect to those who would seem to least deserve it. Do it for you. Do it for them so that you benefit. Do it for you so that they benefit. That's harmony, another quality of love. If instead you work out of a or It's him or me, George Bush. You're either with us or against us. Nothing in the middle. No permutations. No variations. You're either with us or against us. That is a fear mentality. That is just plain, stupid thinking. It's ignorance to believe that Every difference is in opposition. What a horrible, frightening place to live. Unless somebody agrees with you, even your spouse, now your kids and your parents and your neighbors, they've all got to agree with you on every issue or you refuse to respect them. And you wonder why you're unhappy How could you respect yourself? How could you love yourself? 
See, how, how could you ever be happy if we're not going out of our way to deliberately initiate love, trust, and today's theme, respect, the power of respect to people, including those who don't deserve it. Because deserving it, they don't have to earn your respect. You have to find something in them to respect. Dick Cheney. I know, I know, I know. It's, it's like unbelievably difficult. How am I going to respect a man that promotes torture? I, I didn't say it's easy. It's very difficult. But I would suggest you try uh, with compassion to understand that even if Dick Cheney doesn't know that he is a soul, he is. If Dick Cheney doesn't understand he's a, a, a member of the family of man, you must. All right? Does that mean you forgive and forget? Well, certainly I wouldn't ask you to forget. Forgive depends on what that means to you and how that feels in your body. But compassion, yeah, compassion is also a quality of love based on the understanding that we're all suffering as human beings. That as rich and as wonderful as life can be, especially when we initiate love in all of its qualities in our lives over and over and over again, that nevertheless there will be suffering, there will be loss, there will be grief, there will be lies, there will be cheating. There will be abandonment. You will be betrayed. You will be tempted not to trust. Right? There will be calls from others as well as inside your own head and heart to live in fear, to attempt to protect yourself by creating around you a shield of fear by refusing to trust anyone, right? I'm not going to love again because I loved, I let them in, and they hurt me. So I'm not going to ever love again, right? I'm not going to trust again because I trusted that person and they lied and they cheated on me. I'm not going to ever trust again. You feel the binary, either-or, animal brain and that, no permutation, no variation, no no dynamic in that. See, what about I will learn to trust again? I will uh, trust until I see a reason not to. I'll be intelligent, I'll be alert, I'll be wary, but I'm not going to withhold my trust. I'm not going to withhold my love. I'm certainly not going to withhold my respect because then I poison myself. You can practice this in every area of your life. I was thinking about sports. And uh, in fact, I was looking at this, uh, this movie the other day. I remembered this film about the, uh, the prison football teams. Uh, they they did a couple of versions of this uh, 
uh, film. I wish I could remember the name of it, but you probably know the movie I'm, uh, movie I'm talking about where these uh, prisons raised these football teams and then two prisons in the same state had a, a competition with the uh, the inmates playing football. And I started thinking about what happens when the prison guards show respect and trust of the inmates and allow them to play sports, um, allow them even to box, uh, put them on buses, allow them to go out of the prison and go to another prison and represent as a team. Imagine, as a team, this group dynamic, the prison and this opportunity to create some self-respect and some pride, a sense of dignity, of sportsmanship, of of teamwork. Uh, as more and more prisons are outsourced and turned over to private corporations, this is less likely to happen. Prisoners will be disrespected, and prisons will become even more hellish. But we we could improve a prison, make it a, a much much better experience for all involved, so that society would benefit as a result of the inmates benefiting by making these truly institutions of rehabilitation rather than simple incarceration and punishment by respecting the prisoners. Would that not teach the prisoner how to respect the guards and and respect the establishment that put them there and maybe even respect the society that has done them so much wrong? Like the shampoo bottle, lather, rinse, repeat. That respect has to be repeated over and over and over again. What if every prison guard had to call every inmate sir or ma'am? Now, I suspect the really intelligent ones do. Just like if we had more intelligence in the right wing, they wouldn't bring guns to health care rallies. They would talk to liberals by saying sir. And vice versa, we need to say that to people that we understand are just not as well informed. Again, I I have to hasten to keep adding, there are many, many, many political and social issues upon which reasonable people will disagree, left and right, liberal and conservative, Democrat and Republican, but there are also many issues that are simply disagreements between uneducated, uninformed people and the better educated, knowledgeable people uh, who understand what's in the greater interest, uh, the best interest, uh, or the greater good. (coughs) Excuse me. I know it may sound arrogant to say that, but it's a risk I'm willing to take. It's just a simple truth. Right. Lots of what passes as political stuff, and uh, everybody's got a right to their own opinion. No. The more educated and informed you are, the, the greater your right to an opinion. But again, 
doesn't mean that you disrespect somebody because they're poorly informed or because they've been misled or lied to, right? They still love their kids. They, 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 they're still human beings. They still have the same kinds of feelings that you do. And they're suffering. They're living a life of lies and betrayal and uh, loss and grief. And that's a place to get a foot in the door and learn to respect even your enemy, much less those that you simply disagree with over politics. Lead with respect in those situations. And not only is it likely to be returned, but even if it is not, you will gain self-respect. Trust people. You'll learn to trust yourself more as a judge of character. I mean, has it ever occurred to you that if you have issues trusting people, that underneath it, supporting it, is you don't trust yourself as a judge of character? And if you learn to judge yourself, I'm sorry, if you learn to trust yourself as a better judge of character, it'd be easier to trust other people. You just can't separate respect from self-respect or love from self-love. They're not two different things. They are dependent upon each other. So there is no self-love, there is no self-respect, there is no self-trust. There's no happiness, no satisfaction, no contentment in life. Unless and until we learn to grant these solar qualities, these spiritual qualities to people, especially those who seem not to have earned it, or not to deserve it because they're just so wrong or cantankerous or mean or violent or somebody like Dick Cheney wraps himself in the American flag and tortures people and shreds the Constitution, calls himself the patriot when he's violating every American principle that we've ever held dear. And somehow, one in four Americans think that's okay. Because their parents were Republicans. Because Republicans are the party of successful, prosperous people. And Democrats, oh, they're just working class, blue collar. These are the, you know, it's dividing America based on whether you shower before work and put on a white shirt or wear a blue shirt and shower after work. And you'll respect your own, but not the other. Again, if you refuse to respect the animals, the plants, the mineral kingdom, you poison your life support system. If you don't love, trust, and respect others, you poison yourself. This is in your self-interest to learn to respect people that don't deserve it. That's what I wanted to talk about today. Let me uh, get back to my machine. I came in here (coughs) to the other room and 
sat on on a chair for a minute. Let's go to your questions and comments, and then we'll do a little visualization exercise and adjourn the class for the day today. I know it's a little early and we're going a little short, but again, I'm a little uh, uh, wheezy and coughing here today. So if you have a question or a comment or just want to say hi, use the text box if you're listening to the web feed live. It's down there in the lower half, or just click on the button that says Ask a Question if you don't see it. Add your name and your city, and be sure to hit the Submit button. And if you're on the phone or you'd like to go to the phone, I encourage you to use the phone. A lot of people are bashful about this. Um, all the directions are right there on the website. Press star 2 to raise your hand. I won't, uh, I won't pick up the phone and talk to you if you don't raise your hand by pressing star 2. So uh, let me check a couple of things here. Oh, good. Checking attendance. A lot more people have come in. Hello and aloha. Uh, far fewer people on the phone, but it's nice to see some people on the telephone. Let's go to the Q&A section here, see who's got what to say about our topic. Okay, uh, let's see. we got John Bowles in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hello, John. He says, aloha, Michael. Carol Postel says, hello, from La Habra in Canoga Park. Phil Jaffe. And uh, he said something about sending me a Wikipedia video. And, you know, I, I haven't said anything, but this you probably need to know this. I... Uh, my computer exploded the other day. I'm using Doreen's computer here in the other room as a backup system today. But uh, we had a series of thunderstorms, uh, like 20 power failures, at least 20 power outages in like an 18-hour period. Um, it's funny, uh, Hawaii and Maui in particular is really in many ways, like a third world nation. And uh, so we had a water main washout, and they were telling everybody in our neighborhood to boil their water, and we had no power, and it was just a little rainstorm. But the infrastructure here is just ancient. All of these old pipes and these maze, this rat's nest of power wires. Anyway, it was either a power surge or uh, the power went out while the computer was booting up. and So I don't have any email for a few days, and uh, we're limping along here. So if you write to me, uh, you may not hear from me for a while. <coughs> oh, boy, I apologize for that. But Again, if it's important, just give me a call. Use that telephone number I mentioned before. Or another good number for me, my uh, my voicemail, my personal voicemail is 818, also a Los Angeles number, anytime, 24-7, If it's important, you, know, you want to book a session, you know I do telephone and Skype counseling. Uh, or you want to talk to me about the uh, 
Maui Mindfulness Retreat, middle of uh, February next month. Uh, give me your call, 818-569-3017. In Lakeland, I think that's Florida, Becky just says Lakeland. And she says, hi, understanding and proceeding with gentle wisdom. Thank you, Becky. Glad that works for you. Glad that makes sense. Um, in Brookings, Ohio, Bruce, aloha, Michael. Good health to you. Thank you. I appreciate that. And everyone else listening. Uh, thanks for a great program today. Reminds me that America has a long way to go in rebuilding a position of respect in the world. It will uh, have to look much different the next time around. I didn't talk about us respecting nations and, and other people. Well, I guess I guess it did touch on that. In Honolulu, uh, Bert is with us today. Hiya, Bert. He says, greetings. After witnessing our government and media outlets suspend its daily business to give up the tragedy or to give the tragedy in Tucson its undivided attention, and after witnessing the expression of shock, grief, and reflection on how this terrible thing could happen in our society, a question came to mind. How is this senseless act of violence any different than the countless similar events that have occurred in the Afghanistan and Iraq wars? How are the innocent victims, for the most part I consider our servicemen and women victims also, shot and killed in similar incidents in Afghanistan and Iraq over the past decade, any less worthy of the same attention and respect given to the victims in Tucson's um, recent events. And Bert goes on, he says, uh, I submit they are not and that there should be no difference. And that's why I've always felt that we have no business waging war in these two countries. I would hope our president and other leaders would view the deaths, injuries, and broken lives resulting from war in Afghanistan and Iraq with the same gravity and respect they have reacted to Tuesday's uh, recent tragic event with. Get well soon, and my best to Doreen Aloha, Bert. Thank you, Bert. Very good. Very well thought out. In the beautiful downtown Burbank, David Cantu. Hi, Mike. Great show. Uh, so much making sense to me, as always. Uh, these are great points that you bring up on responsibility of love. Thank you. That is uh, an interesting way to say it. Right? You know, it's not just, oh boy, I get to love when it suits me, but <laughs> I have a responsibility to act from love and all at all times. Yeah, if that's what you're made out of, and that's who we are, for sure. David says, I've experienced so many acts of love from others in my life, from out of the blue, that I know what you talk about. Uh, here is uh, really true. The initial concepts open some windows for me. I just need to model it more. I love the fresh air. Thank you. Love you, brah. And aloha. Thank you, David. In Albuquerque, Diane says, the Tucson tragedy affected everyone I know. I saw heartfelt human reactions from men, women, and children who reflected all ages, political interests, 
religious beliefs and races. Families and individuals are talking, feeling, reviewing their own attitudes and behaviors. The tragedy brought to so many a new or renewed consciousness of the tremendous loss and sadness associated with anger and tolerance, disrespect, and mental illness. These types of tragedies open community hearts, consciousness, and they play a role in what finally brings our nation to a time of united consciousness, respect, and love. Thank you, Diane, our nation, and hopefully the world. Again, that's part of uh, the evolution of humanity, is to know that we're a single family. That's going to take a while. Genetically, we can trace ourselves to a tribe of 10,000 people. (coughs) I don't think most people in this world know that. I don't think most Americans who like to believe they know everything are aware that genetically we can prove that we're all members of a very small village of less than 10,000 people. That there were other human races or similar to human races, at least three or four other what shall we say, if not human races, um, homo sapien, hominoid, (laughs) I'm not sure what the term is, but those races became extinct. And the Neanderthals are the ones that prevailed. And again, if you just look at it genetically, uh, we're cousins, we're all cousins. So why don't we act that way? Well, because we get angry and frightened. That's really at the root of all negative uh, feeling, of course, is fear. Even the people that we love dearly, our own children, our parents, our spouses, our best friends sometimes really upset us. The idea is to recover as quickly as possible by making that about us, not them. The fight or flight part always makes it about the other person. And so initially, when you're upset with somebody, you always... (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) You tend to fixate on the other person. Try to figure out what's wrong with them. But... uh, the power to release it, to understand it, to realize it and let it go is in taking ownership. It's like the trust thing I mentioned earlier. Well, I can't trust them anymore. Well, can you trust yourself as a judge of character? Bring it home. Bring it home. You know, my cough is getting worse. I may have to bail here real quickly and even skip the meditation. I don't see any hands up. I don't see anybody on the phone with their hand raised. So with your permission, well, even without your permission, I'm going to bail because I feel a big cough and jag coming on. And I think this is about all I've got. Again, my apologies. I feel fun. I've just got this cough. So I'm going to let you go. Thank you for being here. 
for this class, The Power of Respect. Join us next week. Podcasts may go up a little late this week, but we'll get it up sooner or later. And aloha from Maui. Be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. This is Michael Feather. So long. Aloha.